What a foolish question. I'm out right now. What, what do you have inside your head, Mikal? Wheat. These are big bad boys, and I'm about to teach them poetry. <laughs> If you don't come through, Lord, I'm toast. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and it's such a pleasure for me to be with you every time that you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And when we're talking stories, we're not talking about news stories. We're talking about tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales and personal and family tales and more. This is going to be a great hour. We're going to hear a story from Barry Stewart Mann called Mama, Mama, Ayudame. You'll hear a story from Geraldine Buckley, who was once the chaplain in the largest men's prison in Maryland. And uh, you're going to hear an old-time radio broadcast called Detour to Terror, part of the old Inner Sanctum radio show. And we'll tell you all about it a little later on in the hour. One thing's for sure, you won't want to miss a single moment of it. And introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today. I'm so pleased to have with me here in the studio one of our assistants producers, Alyssa Mingorance. Alyssa, it's great to have you with me. Hi, Sam. Let's talk about this Barry Stewart man story. It's got a title in Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's called Mama, Mama, Ayudame, which means help me, right? <laughs> And uh, in this story, there is a young man who is crushing hard on a beautiful young woman in his <laughs> village, right? And uh, he just doesn't know how to talk to her. He doesn't know what to say. So he comes to his mom and he says, you know, Ayudame, right? Help me. And she always gives him advice, but it always ends up getting twisted in just the wrong way. Um, you know, of course, for our um, our listening pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a story that in some ways is like you, – you hear Jack tales that are set up like this, mm -hmm. right? Where Jack is given an assignment and he gets, he gets advice from his mother and he tries to follow the advice from his mother – with disastrous results. Of course. And then his mom says, no, don't do it that way. Do it this way. And then, you know, on and on it goes. So there are a lot of versions of this kind of story. And this is a really delightful one. Barry Stewart Mann with Mama Ayudame here on The Appleseed. Mama, Mama Ayudame. Help me, tell me what to say. Había una vez, once upon a time, there was on the island of Mallorca in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Spain, a widow who had a son named Mical, who was sweet and kind and hard-working. But Mical was not the brightest star in the sky. He was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He was not the fastest horse on the racetrack. In other words... No era tan inteligente. He wasn't very smart. He could never think of the right thing to say, which is why he sometimes asked his mother for help. Mamá, mamá, ayúdame. Help me, tell me what to say. But it didn't matter, because Mikal spent most of his time taking care of the family's sheep, and they never cared what he said. Years passed, and Mikal grew to be a tall, strong, handsome young man, And his mother became una vieja, an old woman. And one day she said to him, Mical, es tiempo de que te cases. It's time that you should get married. 
But Mama, he said, who would marry me? I've never even talked to a girl. Oh, what about Anna Maria, the girl who lives on the other side of the village? Oh, she's very sweet and quiet. You two would make a great match. Go and talk to her tomorrow. Mikal pleaded, Mama, Mama, ayúdame, help me, tell me what to say. Oh, mijo, my son, that's simple. Just ask her how she is. She never leaves her house, so ask her why and if she would like to go walk with you. He smiled and said, Bueno. The next morning, he went off to Ana Maria's house, but on his way, there on the street, he saw Ana Maria. Walking arm in arm con su madre, with her mother. He called out, Hola! And she smiled and blushed. He stood up straight, remembered his mother's advice, and said very carefully, Ana Maria, why don't you ever go out? Ana Maria smiled and said, What a foolish question! I'm out right now. What, what do you have inside your head, Mikal? Wheat! Mikal felt so embarrassed, he couldn't utter a word. He turned and ran home. When he told his mamma what had happened, she said, Mikal, no, 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 no. That's not what you say when you see someone on the street. He frowned and said, Mamma, mamma, ayúdame, help me, tell me what to say. I have an idea, Mikal. Ask her to go dancing. That way you can be together, but you won't have to talk. Mikal smiled and said, Bueno. He waited a few days so that Anna Maria might forget his foolish question, and then he went off to her house. This time he arrived and knocked on the door. When it was opened, he looked in to see Anna Maria and her relatives, all dressed in black, and there was a large wooden box in a corner. Mikal said, Hola, and Anna Maria said, Hola, Mikal. ¿Qué pasa, Anna Maria? What's going on? Oh, she said, Mi tío se murió. My uncle died. We are very sad thinking about him. Oh, said Mikal. Then he remembered his mother's advice and said very carefully, Ana Maria, would you like to go dancing? She looked at him, puzzled. Mikal, no. My uncle just died. Of course I don't want to go dancing. What do you have inside your head? Frogs? Mikal ran home. He told his mother what had happened. No, 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 no. That's not what you say when someone has died. He said, Mama, Mama, ayúdame. Help me. Tell me what to say. She sighed. When someone has died, you look very sad. And you say something like, May his spirit fly swiftly up to heaven. Mikal smiled. Bueno. He waited a few more days. Then he went back. This time, Anna Maria was outside with a group of people, standing in a circle, laughing and singing, and there was smoke coming up from the center of the circle. Mikal said, Hola, Anna Maria. She looked and said, Hola, Mikal. ¿Qué pasa? Oh, Mikal, we are having una fiesta, a party, to celebrate my brother's birthday. We are roasting the pig. Would you like to stay and have some? Mikal remembered his mother's advice. He put on a sad face. Oh, Anna Maria, may his spirit fly swiftly up to heaven. She cried, Mikal, it's a pig. 
We're going to eat it. What do you have inside your head? Mud? He ran home and told his mother, No, 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 no. That's not what you say when someone offers you some roasted pig. Mama, mama, ayúdame. Help me, tell me what to say. She sighed. When someone offers you roasted pig, you could lick your lips and rub your belly and say something like, uh, I hope it's a nice, big, fat, juicy, delicious one, and yes, I'd love a big piece. Mmm. Mikal smiled and said, Bueno. The next time he came to Ana Maria's house, she was sitting in the kitchen with a man by her side. He was looking at her neck. Hola, Ana Maria. Hola, Mikal. ¿Qué pasa? Well, she said, the doctor is here, and he's looking at this wart on my neck, trying to decide what to do about it. Mikal thought carefully, licked his lips, and rubbed his belly, and said, Ana Maria, I hope it's a nice, big, fat, juicy, tasty, delicious one, and yes, I'd love a big piece. Mmm! Mikal, it's a wart! I don't want it to be big and fat and juicy, and no, you can't have a piece. What do you have inside your head? Flies? He ran home. No, 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 no. That's not what you say when someone has a wart. Mama, mama, ayúdame. Help me. Tell me what to say. When someone has a wart, you say, I hope it gets pulled up by the roots and never grows back for a hundred years. Bueno. The next time, Ana Maria was in her garden. Hola, Ana Maria. ¿Qué pasa? Oh, Mikal, I am trimming my grandmother's rose bush. Isn't it beautiful? Mikal said, I hope it gets pulled up by the roots and never grows back for a hundred years. Anna Maria burst into tears. This is my grandmother's rose bush. I don't want it to be pulled up by the roots. What do you have inside your head? Worms? Mikal, every time you come here, you say the silliest things and it's making me crazy. Please, don't come and talk to me anymore. Oh, and by the way, just in case you're even thinking of asking me if I want to marry you, the answer is no. Mikal turned around and walked away with a broken heart, because in coming to visit Anna Maria all these times, he had fallen in love with her, and now he knew that she would never marry him. As Mikal walked, he thought about all the foolish things he had said, when suddenly he looked up, and he saw a beautiful young woman, much more beautiful than Anna Maria, whom he had never seen before. He thought about what he could say to her, but before he had a chance, she raised her hand. She put a finger over her lips, which he knew meant that he should not speak. Then she put both her hands over her ears, which he immediately understood. She could not hear. She was deaf. When he realized that it wouldn't matter what he said and that he didn't have to utter a single word, he relaxed and a smile came across his face, and a twinkle came into his eye. It was as if a burden had been taken off his shoulders. She smiled, too, and had a twinkle in her eyes. And with his hands gesturing and pointing, he asked her if she might want to walk with him. She nodded. At first they just walked, smiling at each other from time to time, but soon they began to communicate. He pointed out a bird in the air, or the lake where he liked to swim. She pointed at the road to her house, or told him that she was thirsty for a drink. They walked all afternoon, 
talking with their hands and their faces, and they enjoyed it so much that the next afternoon they walked again, and the next after that, and after a while, they weren't just talking with their hands as they walked, but holding hands as well. And soon enough they were holding hands in the church in front of the priest, because they were getting married in a beautiful and very silent wedding. And Mikal never again had to say, Mama, Mama, ayúdame, help me, tell me what to say. Because he and his wife created a home, started a family, and lived happily ever after. Barry Stewart Mann with Mama Ayudame. What a delightful story that is. Absolutely. I think there are two things about the story that just really warm my heart. And I think <laughs> one is, you know, we always see usually our, our hero who like wins in the end and, you know, gets married and all those things is a trickster or like a really wise man or something <laughs> like that, right? And, and that's wonderful. And we love those. But I love that even if you're not the brightest bulb or whatever, you still deserve love and you still get to have a happy ending too. And I just think that is so sweet. And the second thing, is I think those relationships where you can, like, you don't need words to communicate, you Mm. know, where it's just being together. I think those can be some of the most simple and pure relationships. It takes me all the way back to the seventh grade um, when I had changed schools quite a bit and I knew I was going to change schools next year. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really like outgoing. I wasn't looking to make a ton of friends because I knew I was going to have to leave them at the end of the year. Um, But in my Spanish class, there was this one boy named Raj who was also kind of quiet and we ended up sitting next to each other and we barely spoke to each other. Um, But we really just enjoyed each other's company. And it was a very similar thing where we were both kind of quiet. We just always sat next to each other. And, you know, not a lot of words, but every now and then there's always going to be a little soft corner of my heart for for Roz just sitting next to me and, you know, just vibing together. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. You know, I'm a parent Mm -hmm. and you – you look for the day, you hope for the day, you work for the day, you know, when 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 your child can do the things that he or she needs to do on their own. You yeah, know, I mean, absolutely. You, you work for that for sure. But then you really, really delight e- even after kids have left home and things like that. You really, really delight in somebody coming back and saying, Mom, Dad, can you help me with this? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I thought about that a lot as I listened to this. Uh, as I listened to this story, even though the situation of this story is, you know, different than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, a delight to hear Barry Stewart Man with Mama Ayudame and uh, Alyssa. Thanks for bringing us this story. Always. There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. I'm Sam Bain. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. 
If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a story from Barry Stewart Mann. Mama, Mama Ayudame was the name of the story. There's a lot coming up this hour. You're going to hear a story from Geraldine Buckley about how she became the chaplain in the largest men's prison in Maryland. You're not going to want to miss a word of that tale. And you're going to hear an old-time radio broadcast of Detour to Terror, one of the episodes of the old Inner Sanctum radio show. And we'll explain a little bit about that later on, but you won't want to miss a single minute of it. It's going to be great fun. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you to share with the people around your kitchen table or living room, here is a memory of mine. It's a memory that has to do with a bunch of hats owned by a lady in my neighborhood named Bella. It's a memory that's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I don't even know why I said yes to this, but when I was 16 years old... A lady down the street asked if I'd come and help her with a church project. Her name was Bella, and she was perhaps the oldest person in my neighborhood. I thought maybe she'd hoped I'd come and clean out some rain gutters or something, but when I went over to her house, she invited me into her living room and told me what I'd be doing. She had created a show, a show that she was preparing for the next meeting of the church ladies' group a month away, and the show was called Bella's Hats. And in this show, an old woman named Bella is sitting in a living room with an enormous hat rack filled with hats saved from the span of her whole life, and one by one, she takes a hat down and sighs and reminisces out loud about some memory associated with the hat. But Bella thought the show might get a little boring if it consisted only of a woman talking about her hats. And so each memory associated with each hat would also be associated with a dance number, a dance popular at one time or another during the life of this character. So, for example, Bella would take down a hat that reminded her of dancing with a handsome soldier during the war and somebody pretending to be the soldier would come out on stage, and somebody pretending to be Bella would come out on stage, and they'd dance the dance in her memory, while Bella stood to the side, gazing in a state of reverie at the hat she'd pulled down from the rack. And then at the end of the show, this character, Bella, who had ostensibly taken all these old hats out to give to goodwill, would decide that the memories brought on by the hats were too lovely and too important, and in the end she keeps all the hats, and that's the show. And that's what she decided she needed my help with. Every memory, every hat, every dance in the show was somehow about a boy and a girl, and she wanted me to play the boy. She wanted me to learn all these dances and go to the performance of the show in front of the church ladies' group and perform in Bella's Hats, the epic stage show. Well, I would very much rather have cleaned out rain gutters. I'm no dancer. Anyone who has ever known me knows that, but I asked who would be playing the girl, my dance partner in every scene, and she told me that her granddaughter Nanette would be playing that part. Also, that we'd be rehearsing every Tuesday and Thursday for a month. And, well, I agreed to do it. And maybe that's because she had a picture of her granddaughter, Nanette, on the piano in her living room. Maybe that's what clinched it for me. 
But it was a smooth month of ups and downs. I learned the cha-cha and the waltz, and I learned the tango. And when I say I learned these things, I mean I got so that I could do them all the way through without falling down. And just when I thought it might be okay, and that I might be okay at it, and that, after all, Nanette was probably feeling all the same misgivings as I was. After all, we were both just teenagers who didn't know anything. I went over to Nanette's house to pick her up for rehearsal one day, and I saw over the fireplace in her house an enormous painting of Nanette herself in a ballet outfit, bending gracefully to tie her ballet slipper. And when I saw that painting and told her that I didn't know she danced, she said, yeah, I've been dancing since I was four. And so there I was, all alone again, having learned that Nanette, who I had all this time thought was probably as nervous as I was, was actually a ringer, an old ballet pro who was probably laughing at my every step on the dance floor. And for sure, I would have preferred to clean out the rain gutters. As it turns out, though, Nanette was patient and kind with me, even if her grandmother sometimes got impatient as I stumbled around her living room, trying to figure these dances out. And the lesson that Bella hoped to communicate to the church ladies' group, that memories are important and worth talking about, and worth saving artifacts about, and worth making shows about, well, I kind of bought that. I believed it. I believe it still today. I never got much better at dancing, but I survived the show and Nanette and I stayed friends for a season, and I think I wound up enjoying it a lot more than I would have enjoyed cleaning out rain gutters. And now I, myself, have a closet shelf full of hats. Hats purchased as souvenirs of ball games and music festivals and Boy Scout trips. Hats that help me remember good times and bad. None of them are as fancy as the hats on Bella's long-ago hat rack. In fact, most of them are just ball caps. But if any of them can bring me back to days on the sidelines or in the mountains or in the audience or even tangoing across the floor of Bella's living room with Nanette, trying to look a little less nervous than I felt, well, then, they're doing their job. And if you ask me, it's a job worth doing. Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Did you ever have an experience in which you embarked on an activity that you didn't think you were going to enjoy and you wound up enjoying it? Well, those can sometimes be stories worth sharing with the people around your kitchen table or living room. There's a lot more coming up. Stick around for an old-time radio broadcast of Detour to Terror, one of the inner sanctum radio shows that broadcast during the golden age of radio. It's going to be fun for us to bring that to you. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the tales that we tell from teller to listener, sometimes through generations and generations, through the books that we read and come to love, through the food that we eat, the songs that we come to appreciate, and, of course, through television and film as well. And uh, it's a great delight to have a great film and television aficionado with us, Cole Wissinger, part of our BYU Radio family. It's great to have you, Cole. Thanks for joining me. 
Thanks, Sam. I really get to be the movie expert, bringing you a movie that probably no one's ever heard of today. A a little known gem from 2011 called Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part (laughs) 2. Right. Only a movie that everybody saw twice, right? Or or more in some of our cases. (laughs) I remember becoming acquainted with the Harry Potter stories before they were a world phenomenon. I remember seeing a friend of mine reading a book and saying to him, hey, what is that you're reading? And having him introduce me to this little series he had discovered right <laughs> hey man everyone finds it for the first time some it, it, it may be well into our cultural zeitgeist now but at one point everything was just this little something that someone that's thought. right that's right and of course it uh, i actually forgot about it i asked him about it he recommended it but then i didn't read it for a long time and it was only when my father came to visit my home he lived far away from us and pulled out of his suitcase a copy of the prisoner of azkaban and sat down on my couch on an afternoon and started to read that i thought maybe there's something to this harry potter stuff after all and i started to read myself and of course uh, haven't been out of those woods since (laughs) the third book is actually where i jumped into it too because My aunt gave me a copy for my birthday one year and had written inside the front cover, like, you know, you like these kind of stories, Merry Christmas, Happy Birthday, whatever it was, signed her name. And that's still in the version that the book that I have on my shelf, uh, along with every other book, because I've gone out and gotten them. You know, certainly Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 is kind of the last stop on at least that part of the ride, right? What's important to you about that movie? It was a 10-year journey, and as I try to think of my relationship with movies and how they tie into the stories that just spark memories in my life, this is one that I couldn't get away from, even though it's very, very well-known, because it captures a whole idea that we don't get in movies anymore, and it's that event screening, the midnight showing of a movie. Nowadays, every single little movie, big movie, whatever it is, is released on Thursday at 7 in the evening before the Friday that it comes out. But it used to be back in the day, Sam, that only the biggest blockbusters for just like this wonderful little window of about five years when the the Dark Knight movies were coming out, these Harry Potter movies, the Twilight movies, also based on books, where you got this excited young audience that was willing to stay up until midnight night because the release date was a Friday and they would watch it from midnight till two in the morning, go home, get a little bit of sleep, go to school the next day. Or or oftentimes these movies would be released in the summer. So we didn't even have to worry about it. And (laughs) you just don't see that anymore. And I, I miss that excitement of movie event watching. Oh, boy, I remember my very young son, my little boy son, coming to me kind of on the eve or a couple of days before the release of the Star Wars film, The Phantom Menace, and Uh, saying, hey, can we go see it on the first day? And me saying, oh, man, to to see it on the first day, I mean, you'd have to go, like, camp out at the movie theater and stuff like that. And his eyes were just shining. (laughs) He thought, that's what I want to do. And so we did. We went and camped in the parking lot of the movie theater and uh, got to see Phantom Menace on the first 
birthday. And yeah, those memories of, you're talking then not just about the content of the film, but about the experience and an experience that's kind of from a bygone era, you know, of going to that midnight movie, uh, waiting till the clock strikes 12 so that you can see it on the day that it's released. And And as you say, that's uh, particularly we spent all of Thursday, you know, going around and we made T-shirts to wear and we got like the fake Harry Potter glasses (laughs) and we had wands to go to. And so even uh, sitting in the line, like we showed up around seven or eight to make sure that we could be the first in line to see it. And we brought our books and we were just reading, you know, to get that last little bit of a refresher before you saw the final chapter. (laughs) And when you see the film today, as you may on a, you know, on a streaming service or heaven heaven forbid you should put an actual disc in a player, right? But when you see that movie today, does it bring back some of those memories? Does it? Can you get back to that midnight showing with your pals? Absolutely, because it kind of helps that this was the last movie that I went and really did that. As I yeah, said, yeah. even big events like the Avengers and the Marvel movies that have come out since, movie theaters realized that they could you know, make a little bit more money by showing it even earlier and earlier. And so our midnight right. screenings crept back up into 10 o'clock on Thursday screenings and then 7 o'clock on Thursday screenings. And now in my job as a movie critic professional, I get to go to critic screenings two weeks before the movies come yeah. out so that I can write a little bit of something before the rest of the general population sees it. And so I'll, I will never get to step back into just that pure go for the entertainment of it movie because movies are my job now. And so <laughs> even watching the Harry Potter movies just when they come on TV or in a marathon with friends, I can remember what it was like to enjoy movies in this way. There was so much event in the event, right? <laughs> so, and even the beyond movie, everyone loves a good movie, but these crept out into the books. I went and got the books at midnight too. Harry Potter in my childhood through middle school and high school really managed to capture things the way I haven't been able to be captured since. Boy, for you and for so many, if you're listening to this conversation and remembering either an experience with Harry Potter films or books or or with other films or books that take you back to a, a sense of event that may be missing from some of the movie experiences that you have now, well, those are worth sharing with the people that you love. It's been such a pleasure to have Cole with us. Cole, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Sam. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat for a moment with Cole Wissinger. We'll be sure to have him back. And up next, you're going to hear an old-time radio broadcast from the golden era of radio drama, something called Detour to Terror, one of the old inner sanctum mystery shows, and you're not going to want to miss it. It's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. A moment ago, you heard a conversation with Cole Wissinger, a conversation about uh, Harry Potter. And it's such a pleasure to chat with Cole. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. In a little bit, a story from Geraldine Buckley about how she came to be the chaplain in the largest men's prison in Maryland. But first, here's a little something. 
now a suspenseful little treat. Beginning in 1941, radio audiences stepped through the creaking door each week for a dose of thrills. A different suspenseful story every episode, 526 episodes in all. It was The Inner Sanctum, and it featured actors like Bella Lugosi, Orson Welles, Mary Astor, and many more. The story we're going to bring you features a guy named Mason Adams, whose voice you might recognize, if you're of a certain generation, as the voice from the TV commercials for Cadbury Cream Eggs, or from the animated sketch about the jazzy triangle and the square square from Sesame Street. The host of the Inner Sanctum was, for a long time, Paul McGrath, who gave kind of a funny and spooky intro to each episode. In fact, let's step through the creaking door ourselves and into the Inner Sanctum. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host, waiting to act as your guide through the squeaking door on a specially prepared travelogue. Mm-hmm. First, we'll take a little jaunt with Jeopardy along the path of peril, where we'll prowl with panic until we take the left turn into Horror Highway, and thence via Terror Turnpike straight into the road to ruin. <laughs> Listen now to the strange tale of a boy and his twin sister and their dog and the wreckers of Hurricane Cove. It's called Detour to Terror. An original radio play written especially for Inner Sanctum by Emil Tepperman. And here is Mason Adams as Jerry Watson to tell you the story himself. I had a strange, uneasy feeling all evening after Linda left to drive to Hurricane Cove. Somehow, I had a presentiment of danger. Linda and I were twins, and always, in some uncanny way, each of us had been able to sense when the other was in trouble. Tonight, the feeling was very strong. Butch sensed it, too. He was only a mongrel pup, but he was smart. I shouldn't have let Linda go alone, but she had insisted... She was a feature writer for the Manhattan Magazine, and she'd run across the trail of a story about an old family of wreckers who lived down by the shore near Hurricane Cove. The tale went that this family had made a living in the old days by placing false signals on the shore in order to lure ships onto the rocks and then loot them. It was this story that she'd gone to investigate. Unwilling to go to bed with that uneasy feeling lying heavy upon me, I dozed in the chair by the fire with Butch's whine in my ears. It must have been a dream, because I saw Linda's face floating in a sort of haze. And then I saw the fear in her eyes as she called to me. Jerry! Jerry, help me! Help me! I came awake suddenly with a cold sweat in my face. Butch was on his haunches by the fireplace, nose in the air, and howling as if for the dead. I felt myself trembling. Linda. Linda in danger. Somewhere, somewhere out in that storm, Linda was calling to me for help. She needed me terribly. Come on, Butch, we're going after her. Well... 
twin brother Jerry and his dog Butch do go after sister Linda. And once they're well out of town, they see a sign illuminated by Jerry's headlights. And the sign says, Bridge Ahead Washed Out. Detour. Well, they pray that Linda saw that sign herself, and they figure she took the detour. And so Jerry and Butch follow suit. The detour takes them deep into the woods, where, surprise, they find Linda's car. But Linda isn't there. Jerry and Butch look around, calling Linda's name in the storm, and miraculously, they find her, alive but unconscious, behind a tree. Jerry gets her to his car, and she comes too. Gosh, you're soaked to the skin, kid. What happened here? Well, there... There was a man. He was hiding up there behind a tree. The headlights caught him when I got stalled in the ditch. How'd you come to land in the ditch? Well, there's a tree lying across the road. See, look over there. You can just see it in the headlights. Oh, yeah. Oh, I see. Gosh, it's a big one. Must have been struck by the lightning. That's what I thought at first. But when I got out to look at it, I saw that... It wasn't struck by lightning. What? Jerry, that tree has been deliberately cut. Linda, are you sure? Sure I am. It's been cut by a saw. The minute I looked at it, I realized it wasn't any accident. Somebody meant to block this road. Great Scott. So I hurried back into the car and I tried to turn around. I wanted to go back. You couldn't have turned around anyway. This road is too narrow. Well, I was too scared to realize that. I started backing up and the rear wheels landed in the ditch. And it was just then that I saw the man... He was coming out from behind the tree, and he was all hunched up so I couldn't see his face. Then when the headlights struck him, he ducked back and he disappeared. Well, I was afraid to stay in the car, so I jumped out and I started to run. And I must have tripped and my head struck something. And that's all I knew till you found me. Are, are you sure it was a man you saw again? Yeah, positive, Jerry. I don't get it. <laughs> what was the idea of blocking the road? <laughs> well, what's the matter, boys? He hears something. Look over there. Someone running through the woods carrying something. I'm going after him. Careful, Jerry. No. I'm coming with you. Oh, it's no use. He ran away in the night. Uh, are you all right, Bush? Look, Jerry. Whoever he was, he dropped what he was carrying. Uh, what is it? it? Looks like a big board of some kind. Here, I'll turn the flashlight on. What's oh, a sign? Has lettering on it. What's it say? What well, says? Great Scott. What is it, Jerry? It says, bridge ahead, washed out, detour. Jerry, this is the detour sign from the highway. Yeah. They only put it up there to lure you onto this back road. Then they blocked the road with a tree. Kid, it looks like we're in some kind of a trap. <laughs> a thought punctuated by a thunderclap. Well, what are Jerry and Linda going to do, right? I mean, the nearness of the trees and the narrowness of the road means that somehow they can't get out of there by car. But between lightning flashes, they see a big scary house in the near distance. And it's risky, but they decide they've got to take a chance that the occupants of the house might be friendly. Well, they start to walk up toward the house. And as they do, they notice the lights in the house are all out. The lights are out, even though they can hear the sound of a piano playing inside. Jerry. What? Do you hear that? Yeah. Yeah, someone playing the piano in there. In the dark. Oh, it sounds uncanny. Come on, I'm going to ring the bell. 
piano stopped? Yeah. I think I hear someone coming. Still no lights. It gives me the creeps. Someone's opening the door. Evening. Caught in the storm, eh? Won't you come in? Uh, your lights, aren't they working? <laughs> How stupid of me. I'd forgotten. Yeah. That better? Yeah, yes, thank you. Uh, I, I'm Jerry Watson. This is my sister, Linda. This is Butch. How do you do? My name is Considine. Gregory Considine. And you're quite welcome, I assure you. Jerry, did you see his eyes? He's blind. That's why I was playing the piano in the dark. Right in here, please. It's a nice crackling fire. You can warm up while I ring for my handyman. Matt will be here in a moment. You uh, ring for me, Mr. Gregg? Matt, uh, this is Miss Watson and her brother, and, and Butch. They've been caught in the storm. I think there's some dry clothing in the west room. Yes, Mr. Gregg. Yeah, this way, please. Are you in there, Gregg? What have you done with those people? Oh, dear. That's my brother Vincent. I'm afraid I'll have to ask a favor of you. Please overlook anything Vincent may say. He's, shall I say, a bit strange. Oh, here you are. Well, introduce me to your friends, Greg. Go upstairs, Vincent. Go upstairs, Vincent. Is that all you have to say to your brother? What are you going to do to these people? What are you planning for them? Vincent. You can't shut me up. Look here, mister. And young lady, take a bit of advice from me. Don't stay in this house overnight, or you'll never live to see the morning. Get out, quick. Matt, you know what to do. No. Yes, Mr. Gregg. No, please, keep away from me, Matt. Keep away. I warn you, Mr. Get your sister out of me. No, hey, let go of me, Matt. Hey, he knocked him out. I regret that it was necessary, Mr. Watson. Vincent is difficult at times. Please pay no attention to what he said. Uh, Matt, please carry Mr. Vincent upstairs and lock him in his room. Whoa, the night is just getting weirder and weirder for Jerry and Linda. And even though Greg Considine insists that it's his brother Vincent who is difficult at times... Who could blame you if you thought Greg himself was the villain of the family? After all, using his thug handyman, Matt, to conk Vincent on the head and lock him in a bedroom, that's the stuff of villainy, right? And Linda agrees. After Vincent is safely locked away, Linda and Jerry are shown to a room of their own, and in nervous tones... They talk things over, and Linda remembers that the old family of wreckers that used to loot ships in Hurricane Cove, you know, the subject of that story she's working on, well, those guys had the last name of Considine, just like Greg, and neither Jerry nor Linda can be sure, but they think they recognize Matt the Handyman as the guy in the woods in the storm with the detour sign. And now, through the window... They can see that Matt, the handyman, is outside, guarding the house with a rifle. It looks like the villainous family is at it again. This time, though, it's not looting ships at sea, but motorists in the woods like Jerry and Linda. The twins realize they got to try and escape, but as they're talking, 
they hear the voice of Vincent, Greg's brother, locked in the bedroom next door. He's come too, and he's asking Jerry and Linda for help. Well, moving very carefully to keep Greg from hearing them in some other part of the house, they sneak out of their own room and quietly let Vincent out of his. Speaking softly, they make a desperate plan to escape. How are we going to get out of here? Matt's watching outside with a rifle. Listen. The piano. My brother is amusing himself in the dark. He always plays the piano when he has something on his mind. Do you know any way for us to get out of here? Well, there's only a slim chance. Now listen to me carefully. I'll go down first and see if they've left the cellar door unlocked. I'll come back for you. Please, don't move until I return. Be careful. Yes, don't worry. I will. Jerry, what'll happen if Greg hears him? Greg will probably call Matt and lock him up again. What'll become of us? We'll worry about that later. Jerry, he stopped playing. Yeah. Do you think he heard Vincent coming no, down? I don't care. Stick behind me. We're going in the living room. Where's Butch? I don't know. Oh. What is it? My foot touched something. A body. Oh. 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 Then I'm going to take a chance on the flashlight. Stand back. All right. Great Scott. What is it? Look. What is it? That isn't Vincent. It's Greg. Watch out. Vincent. Somewhere around. What do you mean? My brother Vincent. The one who's been doing the wrecking. We always keep him locked up. But tonight, he got away. Planted the detour sign. Cut the tree. Vincent did all that. Matt and I, we tried to stop him. Matt went out to the road, took down the detour sign, but it was too late. Watch out. He'll be back. Poor Craig. And we thought of... The lights! Thank you for waiting for me. Vincent! Where'd you get that rifle? From Matt. He won't need it anymore. What are you going to do? <laughs> what do you think? Now, if you're ready. Jerry, he's mad. Look out! Quit! Let go of the <laughs> well, surprise after surprise. First, the shocker that Vincent, not Greg, is the Considine bad guy. Who saw that coming, right? And just when things look hopeless, who should come to the rescue but Butch, the faithful pooch, surprising Vincent and giving the twins a chance to subdue him, even as he has the drop on them with the handyman Matt's rifle. And when the dust settles, Vincent is out. Jerry and Linda are still whole and well. In spite of the best efforts of the villainous Vincent Considine, it looks like our heroes have survived the night after all. What you did all right. <laughs> oh, kid. <sighs> it can write your feature story now. The story of the records of Hurricane Cove. And it'll be under your own byline, too. Oh, I'm going to write it under a double byline, Jerry. The Wreckers of Hurricane Cove by Linda Watson and Butch. (laughs) 
So Jerry's not going to get a byline on that story about the shipwreckers, but Butch the dog may. Well, at the end of an episode of The Inner Sanctum, listeners bid farewell to the heroes of the week, and they heard the goofy, spooky voice of Paul McGrath saying each week, Pleasant dreams, hmm? (laughs) Thanks for joining us for a bit of radio storytelling history on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for a little detour to terror. And now, from sort of cartoonish villains and dastardly deeds of yesteryear and the golden age of radio, to a real-life story about how Geraldine Buckley became the chaplain in the largest men's prison in Maryland. This is a story called The Night That Everything Changed. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. some nights that change everything. I had one of those on November the 11th, 2004. That was the first time I went to prison. (laughs) A friend of mine called Rebecca came up to me at church and she asked if I would do a creative workshop in the men's prison that she volunteered at. She told me it would be in the chapel. And I said yes, but I really was preoccupied. I was thinking what I was going to do next with my career to come to a dead end. I had absolutely no idea what was next. And that's how I found myself, in her car, on a dark and misty night. And I saw through the mist what seemed to me to be mile after mile of razor wire. Well, I looked at that razor wire and I thought, what are you doing? This is a prison you're going into. And panic started to come up in me. But I thought, Geraldine, don't say anything. You've got to appear cool. And so I didn't until we drew up to the gates of the prison. And then I said to her, Rebecca... What kind of prison is this? Oh, she said, it's maximum security. I said, you mean murderers and rapists? Yes, she said, there'll be 200 of them in the room. And that's, oh, that's when I started to hyperventilate. Well, I didn't stop all the way past the very sinister-looking officer at the front gate. And he opened those gates, and then they banged behind me. And that's when I remembered that I was a little claustrophobic. Well, I found the nearest restroom. I got in there. I put my head against the coolness of the stall wall, and I prayed. I always find it's the very best thing to do in these kind of situations. I prayed, Lord, we have a problem. These are big bad boys, and I'm about to teach them poetry. (laughs) If you don't come through, Lord, I'm toast. Well, I hyperventilated all the way into the chapel, and the men were already there. Well, they weren't men. They were giants. I know that every single one of them was glaring at me. I know that every single one of them was rippling their enormous muscles at me. I know that every single one of them was covered from head to toe in full body tattoos. I just know it. Well, I hyperventilated all the way onto the stage, and then I looked out over the rows of men, and they seemed grey. Their faces were grey, the uniforms were grey, the walls were grey. And in fact, it was only Rebecca and myself. We were the only people who weren't inmates in the room. There was an officer, but he was out of the room beyond, down a corridor. And so I started. I started the way I always start my workshops. I told them what I was going to do, that I would do some of my pieces, and then I would put on some music and ask them to write, and that if anybody wanted to share, they could share. But I told them that I don't like being told what to do. And so I wasn't going to do that to them. So people only had to do what they wanted to do. And when I said that, this huge sigh settled over the men. And I was about to start, 
when I saw an older man right in the front row, right where you'd be sitting. And he was glaring at me. Now, this one really was glaring at me. He had his arms crossed. He was sitting back in his chair. He was tapping his foot. And he was glaring. And I thought, Geraldine, just ignore him. Just ignore him. Carry on. Go on with the first poem. So I started. I saw you crying in the night sun, eyes red, throat sore from howling out your pain. Small boy fist clenched, pounding the table, pounding the floor, not knowing how you could take any more of the hell your world became, the secret world all clothed in shame and shouted words and silence. Well, when I got to the end of that stanza, I looked down at Isaac. Well, he had completely changed. He wasn't glaring. He'd stopped tapping his foot. He'd uncrossed his arms. He was leaning forward, and then he went, Yay! Yay, God! And all over, there were men going, yay, yay, God. And something happened in that room. It was though a membrane broke and we were off. I wasn't a volunteer anymore. They weren't inmates. We were all just people enjoying words. And when they wrote, they wrote from a really deep place within themselves, which meant that when they shared, it hit a deep place in us. Well, there were many who stood out, but the first one I remembered was a man, a young man called Larry. He was about... 24. And again, he was big and he had bulging muscles, but when you looked in Larry's eyes, it was clear that he was about 11 inside. And he wrote his pieces, and they were lovely. They were about how much, how very much he missed home. But it wasn't that so much that touched me, not the words. What it was was what he did after he'd done his poem. He very slowly put his big head down, and he leant it on my shoulder. And then I did, without thinking, what I do to one of my nephews. I leant over and I plonked a kiss on his cheek. And when I did that, two thoughts went through my mind. The first one was, he's got a praying mama, and she longs to comfort him. And the second thought was, Geraldine, don't even think about doing that to anybody else. No one. <laughs> and I didn't. And there were more wonderful words. But the other man who stands out was a young man called Andy. And his father had died while he was behind bars, and he'd written about it. And he said how very difficult it was for him that his father had died, and he couldn't go to the deathbed, and that he couldn't go to the funeral. And he said the thing that helped him was the beauty around the prison, because that state prison is surrounded by mountains. And from his cell, he could see them. And he said it was the beauty of those mountains that helped him with mourning, which helped him get through the death of his father. Well, after every one of the stories, I had someone come up and say what they thought of what the person had done. And there was a white guy on the stage, and there was a small, barrel-round African-American guy who was about to comment. And he looked at the guy and he said, I never thought that you'd understand me. Not nothing. I didn't think you'd, you'd be able to connect with me at all. But the words you just spoke, they, they went deep to the pain inside me. It was as though you read my mail. You gave me a gift tonight. I thank you. And then Isaac stood up. Now, I didn't know at the time. Isaac had a PhD, and he was a psychologist. I had no idea. But he stood up, and he said, there's something very interesting going on in this room. It's as though the, these words are a bridge. It's as though tonight there's no gang affiliation. There's no color. There's no age. He said, it's as though we all want the same thing, as though we all want to be loved. We all want to be understood. And as soon as he said that, something went off in me. I thought, oh, the amazing power of creativity. We had room for one more story. I said, Lord, who's it going to be? One more. And hands were going up all over the place. Choose me, choose me, choose me. And I looked at the back of the room, and there was a small, older guy with glasses. And I said, it's you. Come on up. It's you. He said, me. I said, yes, come on up. 
And he leapt on that stage and he was smiling. Well, he wasn't just smiling with his eyes. He wasn't just smiling with his mouth. He was smiling with every pore in him. And as he leapt on the stage, he said, we like you. (laughs) And all the men were going, yes, yes. And I just knew. And I just said, and I like all of you too. And it turned out that he was the inmate pastor. His name was Robert. And he released a blessing with those words because I knew at that moment that I wanted to go into every prison in America. I've always been enthusiastic. I wanted to go into every prison I possibly could and bring creative workshops and healing and hope and laughter. And I went into several of them. But the funny thing is, I ended up being the chaplain in that prison. I left in January 2010. So those big bad boys became my sons the night that everything changed. Geraldine Buckley with a story called The Night That Everything Changed, the story of how she became the chaplain in the largest men's prison in Maryland. What an hour it's been. Stories from Geraldine Buckley, a great time with an old-time radio drama. And, of course, at the top of the hour, you heard Mama, Mama, Ayudame from Barry Stewart Mann. Such a pleasure to be with you. Join us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed, an archive there filled with episodes of the show that are themselves filled with stories for you to enjoy with your family. You can take them with you on your mobile device for a story right when you need one. There are also little mini episodes of the show. We call them Appleseed Extras. Just a single story, just a few minutes long, in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great story. You'll hear Carmen Didi's story, Rice Pudding, there if you go there today. And we hope that you do. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Thanks so much for joining us on The Appleseed. Join us again. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.